Hi, and welcome to the State of Talk podcast. My name is Holly Sansone, and for this interview, we have the privilege of interviewing Rod Gardner. Rod and I were able to talk about some of the history of CAA in Australia, some of his current fascinating multimodal work their team is doing in remote Australia, and a return to M. Mm. This interview format is only one style of the many types of podcasts that the ISCA Publications Committee is hoping to present. Some of the larger goals of the Publication Committee, with the new website, the social media presence, and the forum newsletter, is to generate discussion, collaboration, and put some fire in our belly for those interactional discoveries that can only come from our kinds of naturalistic exploration. If you have any ideas or would like to participate, please go to conversationanalysis.org and reach out to us. We'd love your input on what we are doing, which is to establish a truly international connection between our EM and CA communities. So, thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Okay, hello, my name is Holly Sansone. I am a PhD student here at Queensland University of Technology in Australia, and I'm sitting here with uh, Rod Gardner, who has been doing CA for over 20 years at a number of Australian universities and uh, most recently at UQ, or the University of Queensland. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yes, and uh, we're having a bit of a chat before and thought, considering you have been around the CA community for this long, um, perhaps (laughs) you could give us an introduction to um, how CA moved into Australia and maybe what the culture looked like uh, so long ago. Yeah, I can try. (laughs) When I came, there wasn't much CA in Australia. You probably could say there were, I can think of three people who were here in Brisbane, actually. That's Caroline Baker, Mike Emerson, and you might say Peter Freebody as well, uh, who were using CA in their research in education sociology. Um, But, you know, they were also mixing it up with ethnography and so on, so they weren't doing Shiglofian CA although Mike might object to that, actually, <laughs> me saying that, but sorry, Mike, if you're <laughs> listening. But anyway, so I came here from Germany to Melbourne, and I started a PhD in Melbourne. I was actually, at the same time, a lecturer and a PhD student. Mm. But it was the early days of applied linguistics in Australia. So you could get a job without a PhD at a good university in those days. My goodness. And, yeah. <laughs> My background had been more discourse analysis and applied linguistics, And so I started my PhD and hit upon the topic which proved to be a mistake (laughs) of uh, the language of intimacy. You know, in those days, trying to say, you know, this is intimate language proved to be really difficult. And so I was struggling along with that for a couple of years. Um, And then Sally Jacoby, who unfortunately passed away a few years after that, well, 10 years after that or so, she... uh, came at the invitation of Tim McNamara. She came from UCLA, where she was a star graduate student with Shedloff and Jefferson and those people. She came to visit uh, Melbourne Uni, and uh, as one does, one, she sat down and had a coffee. She asked me what I was doing, and she said, you need to do CA, right? Mm. You need to come to UCLA and get some training in CA. Now, I knew what CA was in those days. I'd read about it and read up some of the early papers, but certainly had no training. So I had, to, after about two years, part-time this was, two or three years of a PhD, I, I looked into this, got in contact with John Heritage at UCLA, and managed to wangle three months in at UCLA 
where I came under the wing of John very much. I didn't have a CA supervisor. Oh, sorry, I wasn't doing CA at that time. Uh, but, you know, I, John was so supportive and he became like a de facto supervisor mm. for me for the last couple of years of that, of my PhD. And while I was at UCLA, in those days, Manny Shegloff recorded his lectures on audio and uh, he he did introductory, two introductory courses, so 26 weeks altogether. And so he wasn't teaching them when I was there, but he lent me the recordings of the lectures and I transcribed them, of course, as a CA person would. <laughs> I think I got to about week eight or nine of the second course. So I have these handwritten, that wasn't handwritten, uh, transcriptions of those lectures, which I still have somewhere at the bottom of a cupboard. But anyway, that's where I got my introduction. Oh, a quick question. Did you transcribe those by hand all in that same three months that you were at UCLA? Pretty much, you know. Like, um, I think you, you, know, you have to be a bit like, like a mono-mind. Mm. And I was sitting up till oh, early hours of the morning just transcribing them, you know, like hours and hours and hours in the three months I was there, as well as, you know, mixing with people. There were some great students there at the time. Mm. Some of them, like Marie-Elena Soyanen and Maria Egbert, and lots of, lots of really top students who've gone on to have big careers mm. at, at uh, NCA around the world. Um, and how, how was it changing your methods halfway through your PhD? Well, that was like a kind of moment when <laughs> it just took a completely different direction. So that's when I went from trying to sort of say something sensible about the language of intimacy, which was just bogging me down, mm. to, well, what ultimately, some of you may know from when listeners talk, focusing on, hmm, so probably one of the bigger trans transitions <laughs> in topic from big to small, you know, or focused, let's say focused, yeah. But, yeah, it, 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 was, it was a transformative kind of experience just, to, you know, to suddenly be... Suddenly, I mean, many of the listeners here will know that discovering CA can be quite an eye-opener, to say the least, mm. and it can change the way of, um, you know, seeing talk to something completely different. So, yeah, and then I, I spent the, the last two years um, like just focusing in, and I didn't have the topic when I left UCLA, but, you know, it, that that method, I started sort of noticing these ums all over the place. Nobody had written about them, or very little. Manny had a little bit, of course, and one or two other people, and, and um, Jefferson. But, you know, like, started noticing them all over the place, and, you know, the kind of what, what's that doing there <laughs> kind oh. of question. Why that now? And, uh, you know, then came to the point where it was, like, you know, it was actually a moment, I remember to this day, that I, w I was looking at these things, trying to work out what the hell they were doing, and then I had a moment where I said to myself, oh, that's what they're doing. And, you know, that could be a moment in the past, which say, oh, no, it isn't. But actually it turned out that when I looked further, it was what they were doing. They were saying, that thing you just said, I don't have anything to say about that. I might have something to say about what you said before, but it's a kind of closing down that thing. It's acknowledging it, but it's kind of very neutral because it doesn't have positive or negative... You, you don't want to go into that, but, mm. you know, it was like saying, 
suddenly seeing that, that moment of insight or inspiration or whatever it is, that 1%. And, uh, yeah, and, just, and the rest of it was just the hard slog of uh, making up a big collection of several hundred extracts and uh, shoring it up and ending up with two outliers out of two hundred and sorry, 731 examples and then managed to kind of get some sort of explanation for those two outliers. So it's kind of worked, worked well. That's incredible. How many years did you end up spending on mm, altogether? Well, for the PhD, it was about five years, but that, that was part-time. So. Yeah. Um, yes, but I did return to it. Actually, I've returned to it again recently after 20 years. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I might talk a little bit later about that. Okay, uh, all right. So at that time, it was a pretty lonely experience being a CA person here in Australia. There were very few people doing it. As I said, the three in Brisbane. I was in Melbourne at that time. There were a few people. I did teach CA, a CA course at Melbourne. And amongst those, the students there was Tony Lidicott. And he went on, had a, went on to ANU, I think it was, first of all, where he, he taught um, CA and amongst the people who came out of that course were was jo- Joanna Rendell Short, so she's been around almost as long as I. <laughs> yeah. And here up in Brisbane, uh, Susan Danby, round about that time, was starting her PhD, and she also has made a bit of a stellar career, I'd say. She's yeah. just got this amazing top grant where she's got how many years is it, Holly? Seven, I think. Seven years of, you know, like just focused on this early years technology, centre of excellence, which is one of the hardest things to get. So congratulations to her on that real great achievement. So, yeah, so it was difficult. Like John Herridge said at the time, it's hard to work on your own. But it was also good in some ways because I was surrounded by, for example, lots of systemic functional linguists who used to have a go at me all the time, you know, what you're doing isn't proper linguistics or you don't have a theory and that sort of thing. <laughs> um, yeah, well, look what's happened, you know. Yeah. People without a theory have actually made an impact around the world. Yeah. And those people with, a, with their, say it, rigid. <laughs> say it. <laughs> um, you know, like what they, they even boasted it, that it was like an engine, like engineering, that their theory has kind of retreated into a few little places. I think, I think it's fair to say, anyway, I shouldn't be <laughs> like mocking them. I won't. Okay, <laughs> so um, I'm wondering, do you have any uh, particular moments, I guess, outside of the life changing coffee in Melbourne that from the early days that you might want to um, share about? Yeah, it's hard to pinpoint a moment because from there on it was a slow growth of CA in Australia for a number of years, but it was a growth and I think Tony Lidicott is responsible for that because he was, I mean, I didn't actually have a lot of students that went on to do CA, I don't know why, but uh, Tony did and so we started to have meetings. The first one I remember was in Canberra um, of the, you know, which has now grown into... AIEMCA, Australia Institute of Membership. No, I can't remember what it means. But anyway, it's the it's the Australia New Zealand mm. organisation for CA and MCA and EM. And uh, so we started having regular meetings. Um, I had the opportunity also, which was pretty lucky, to be able to teach 
CA, two courses in CA, you know, within the applied linguistics degrees at a couple of universities. So, you know, was able to, um, you know, teach what I loved. Yeah. Did you have a lot of student interest? There was, yeah. There was a lot of student interest. As I say, not, not so many of them went on, some did, but not so many went on to do PhDs. Um, a few did. Yeah, there, there were a few also down in Melbourne who did go on, contrary to what I said. So there's Anna Philippi, Maria Barakarahan, um, and so gradually CA got a foothold mm. in Australia, and now it's, I wouldn't say it's huge, but it's reasonably strong, pretty well established, and we have quite a, quite a, quite a good presence here in Brisbane. Of course, we're going to have the next ICA here, so, you know, that's a... Very bit of a Yeah, a bit of a landmark. Yeah. I know a lot be. of people don't want to come here because of, um, you know, the distance and, you know, climate change and everything, and I respect that, but uh, I don't know. It's a difficult one. It is, yeah. You can see both sides, but for anyone listening, Australia is beautiful. Oh, it is beautiful. <laughs> and, you know, I guess the thing is, do it, it seems to me, oh, I know, I'm not going to get political, but, you know, I don't. I'm not quite sure how... Academia can work without. Can it work without face-to-face contact? Well, as a CA person, I, <laughs> I think that's hard. Yeah. Well, time will tell, I guess. Yeah. yeah I guess yeah. so. Okay. Zoom is quite good, but yeah. Zoom is not quite the same as like a nice conference dinner. No. <laughs> that's right. All right. So, Rod, um, part of this podcast, I think, is we really wanted to talk about exciting things happening in CA, but I guess more to the point was what makes uh, CA scholars excited. So may I ask you please, what excites you about your work? Um, you know, it can be what you're working on now or something in the recent past. Yeah. Um, what yeah. fascinates you? Yeah, I think still fascinate me. I mean, I, was, I say it that way because, you know, like I'm getting towards the end of my career and, um, you know, you don't tend to get quite so excited as you used to, but... Uh, <laughs> But there are still things that really fascinate me, um, and uh, among, among them is the work that Elana Mushin and I have done on Aboriginal conversation. Mm. Uh, she, she, I mean, she, she was the one who started that, doing writing a, a grammar of Garo, which is a language spoken up in the Northern Territory. Um, Does she speak Garo? Well, she understands it pretty well. Ah. You know, she uh, she's not a fluent speaker by any mm. means, but uh, she can follow it well. And she's uh, having written the grammar, she knows it inside out. Not everybody who writes the grammar understands the language, but she does. She can hold a conversation with them. But it is a, an endangered language, so that you know, I always think I'm so proud of her because you know, writing a grammar of a language which is dying out is yeah. a real contribution. You know, like uh, they can. That means you know, like at least. If it does die out, revive it, and they've got some basis to revive it. You know, not just a list of words, but a lot more than that, and a lot of conversational data she's got. We got together as well. You know, we we started when she met me. We started. She, I went up there with her, and we, and we started recording conversations. So that's that's um, that's a very valuable resource as well. And uh, that work, well, we did do a number of publications. They were kind of on various topics through the 2000s and into the 2010s. Um, but um, more recently, we've um, teamed up with Joe Blythe and Leslie Sterling, Joe Blythe from Macquarie, Leslie Sterling from Melbourne, 
uh, on a project which we call Conversational Interaction in Aboriginal and Remote Australia, which is um, a four-year project. We got a pretty good grant for that, half a million Australian dollars, and uh, we've got quite a big team around us now of PhD students and research assistants who are, you know, like good research. I mean, they're, they're CA people, so mm. that's good. Francesco Francesco Potomato from uh, who, who did his PhD uh, at Sydney, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, and that's kind of going well. Well, we haven't got any publications. I mean, we're just over a year in or a year and a half in, but we, we're getting publications. We're, we're writing stuff up now, but that's really turning out to be really quite interesting. I mean, the reason I think we got the grant is because we were saying that there's all these guidelines for health, for education, for the law about how to talk to Aboriginal people, and there's all these kind of think, claims about they you know they speak differently to mm. us whiteies, and mm. you know that they're you know, this is what you need to do. And some of that work that it's based on isn't bad. Diana Reed's work, for example, is pretty good. It's sociolinguistic work. And, and, you know, she's got some good insights and she's been doing this stuff for, like, 30 years. Uh, but we had some problems with the way this was formulated. And so we argued that nobody has actually really looked at Aboriginal conversations mm. in, in detail to actually test some of these claims and some of these assumptions and so we have three parts to this project. One is to look at turn-taking and sequence, so classic CA stuff. One is to look at epistemics. That's Ilana's branch. She's leading that branch. Uh, you know, so knowledge management, is that different in any way? And the other is to look at storytelling. That's Leslie Sterling's part. And so that she's leading. We're all involved in all three of those strands. Yeah. And, you know, we are now finding, you know, finding some interesting things like, uh, oh, yeah, I should also say we're not only looking at um, Aboriginal conversations, and we've got some great data from four different languages, we're also looking at remote Australian data. So we're looking at people up in really remote Australia, like Kununurra and Halls Creek, which are right up in the northwest, miles from anywhere. Um, could I interject quickly? Now, I know that... There are some, you know, difficulties with video recording Aboriginals because of their um, cultural desire. I think once someone passes, you know, not being still on video recording, that might not be precise. Did you find any, like, ethical concerns or any trouble um, getting people to consent in audio recording? Yeah, we, we, we didn't, but we did go through all of the, you know, the ethical clearance, mm. and that was quite rigorous, have to say, uh, we read um, a lot of the guidelines that are published about this, and you know, Aboriginal values. Of course, anybody who was recorded, we you know, talked to them. And the thing is, Ilana already knew a lot of people up yeah. in uh, in Borroloola where Gara was spoken. Joe worked up in Wadea, which is south of Darwin, and he knew the Murrumbatta people very well. He'd also worked with. Gija and uh, Jaru in, in uh, Kimberley in the northwest of Australia. So there was already, an, you know, people, they were already well known. I'd, I've always been up to uh, Borrowola three times, so I know them a bit too. So, we were, you know, the researchers, at least the core researchers, were well known and trusted. And everybody was aware of, you know, that some of these restrictions that you don't uh, show um, you, you don't show video of deceased people, 
uh, and also you know but you know it was a it's a rigorous process yeah the universities don't allow you to just go off and you know record aboriginal people um and, but you know they've they've we've had no objections from them That's you know so um they're, they're fine with it quite a few of the garwa people have passed away you know um since since Ilana started in the late 90s but um you know they don't mind us continuing to use their data but you know showing showing them on video is another matter yeah, well, it's a treasure to have that data, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's great data. And so I think I interrupted you when you were going to give us some tidbits of what you've been finding. Right, oh, well, <laughs> there's no hard hard findings yet. We're still okay. we're still working through it. But, you know, we I, I think I was saying we also recorded English, remote English, and that we had went for people who'd been living out there for at least 10 years and some for all their lives. So we've got, quite, we've got about 18 hours of that, you know, a video recording of uh, English-only conversation, so Anglo people. Um, and we've the sorts of things we've been finding are around, for example, place reference and pointing. You know, it's well known that Aboriginal people on their land, and even not on their land, actually, point extremely accurate to places, accurately to places that are a long way away. You know, they'll 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 point south southeast, and what they're talking about is south southeast. And um, also, white people or Anglo people, according to the research, are much don't do it. Yeah. And the research has been including Manny Shegler's work on on urban people talking about place. And he says that you know when people when 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 um, white people in LA or whatever point to, to a place. They usually get it wrong. They, they, you know, they, they don't point the right way, and if it's if it's not visible, right? If it's I not point it's not, in a helicopter. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like that. It'll be one of the directions. Yes, that's, yeah. And you, so you get two people refer, in a conversation referring to one place, and they're pointing in completely different directions. So there doesn't seem to be, you know, that kind of accuracy that Aboriginal people have. Mm. What we found with these remote people, with a bunch of guys who do a lot of driving over an area of something like 400,000 square kilometres, which is about three times the size of England, uh, on these remote roads, you know, way out in the desert and so on, that we found their points were really accurate. Different in some ways from Aboriginal people. Okay. But, you know, if they were talking about a place called Balgo, which was is south southeast from Halls Creek, their point went pretty much south southeast. There may be a few degrees either side, but you know, really. And if they're pointing to Alice Springs, it would be southeast. You know, and they were, and these points, which I'm doing now, but I'm actually not doing it inaccurately because I'm a white guy sitting in an urban situation. But where am I pointing? I'm actually pointing. Uh, I can't believe it. I'm pointing southeast. Would you believe that? <laughs> That's pure coincidence. <laughs> that's pure coincidence. But anyway, they, you know, so that, that's a that's an interesting finding. That's what we're working on that. But um, you know, we're also, f and then on the epistemic side of side of place reference, we're we're looking at you know th these are small communities of a few hundred people, maybe a few thousand in some cases. So they, you know, it's like being in a you know a school, a medium sized school or a small school. And you know, like so, you know, you know, you know, pretty much everybody. Mm. 
you, there's a few you know well, a few you don't know very well at all, but you know pretty much everybody. So, you, we, you know, you could call these societies of intimates. I know that's not a very ethno thing to say, but, you know, it's uh, very ethnographic, but not ethnomethodological. You know, they, they know each other very well. And so we wanted to see if that had an effect on knowledge management. And so what we're doing with place reference, we're doing with these same four guys. We've got an hour of trans- transcribed of this conversation. Uh, is... What we found is that there's no problem with referring to all these places all around them. They all know it most of the time. You know, they've like when then we went to Wyndham. Everybody knows where Wyndham is. Yeah. You know, no problem. But then we did find that there are sometimes occasions when a place is disputed, and so there's one where one of the guys was coming back to Halls Creek and he saw this light off a few hundred metres off the road. He didn't know what it was. And so they have to discuss about where it is and there's some dispute. No, it can't be that. Yes, it can be that and so on. So, you know, there's that, that's, I guess, not a revolutionary finding, but mm. it's just a, an, another little thing. With the Aboriginal people and the pointing, we've got some wonderful examples where they're pointing, well... Joe thinks they're talking about a boat of Indians coming in, you know, Indians from the Indian subcontinent coming in historically a long time ago, many years ago, coming into this place near where these uh, Morimpata people live. And one of the women then points, and it so happens she's pointing in the direction of India. (laughs) And the Indians came. So, you know, across the continents, they're pointing accurately. I actually am not completely convinced, but Joe is. He thinks that that's an accurate point. Wow. But anyway, they certainly point to places hundreds of kilometres away. You know, they're talking about where there was a dance ceremony, which is 800 kilometres from where they're sitting and they and she lifts up her index finger and points to exactly that community, 800 kilometres away. So those are some remarkable findings. Well, I think they're remarkable. They excite me. Right? Absolutely. But the, I guess the, the finding here is not about the Aboriginal people, that's well known, but that these remote English speakers, when they've lived there for so long that, and become so familiar with the whole landscape, that they can do it to, as I say, they're, they're pointing not to sacred sites, they're pointing to mines and roads yeah. and small communities, that, that sort of thing, and some landscape features, you know, but usually ones that are near the roads. Mm. They don't know the land in between so well. All right. So earlier you had mentioned that perhaps you were coming back to where you began with the Ms. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so what, what is fascinating you? What has drawn you back into that topic? I don't know. It's a kind of like bookending my academic career in a way. You know. um, that PhD was finished in 1995, so 25 years ago. Mm. And uh, I had, I'd looked a bit more, but not much in the few years after that. You know, as many of you will know, once you finish a PhD, you really don't want to see it again for a while. But uh, I th- this actually came out of the, this new project that I, just, I was just talking about, the Kiara project. Um, and noticed that this is a different conversation with four women, four English women, and I noticed that one of them was dropping them everywhere, you know, and the others to some extent as well. That's one of the things I noticed in my PhD, that the production is very hugely across individuals. Some do it a lot and some hard to do it at all. But, so I thought, well, let's have a look at that again. <laughs> After all these years... Um, I hope I'm not forgetting anybody, but I don't think a lot of people have looked in the in the meantime. I, I'm trying to think of if people have here and there bits and pieces. I know people have 
you know, like Anna Philippi is one, but, um, and then I thought, well, one thing you could do is test your findings at that time. Another thing you could do is look, look more deeply at prosody, because I had a very kind of crude distinction between falls, fall rises, and rise falls, because they were over 90% of the, of the collection. Um, and I thought, that's actually a bit crude. It's a bit, like, you know, not coarse-grained. And so let's look a bit more at the prosody. So I started thinking about amplitude and... I know a number of people have looked at some um, these things, some of the you know the more you know the phonetic CA people, but um, and you know and M is such a perfect thing for this because you've got one sound right like it's reduced all the so many factors are kind of left out you know you just got this M which can be configured in various ways, and so I've been you know I built up a collection now about. Uh, close to 200 of these things. I think this is like doing a second PhD. You know. And this is it's, just recently? Yeah, yeah, this is the last few months. This, this is, this is, this is um, a big question again. <laughs> and, um, you know, in, in a kind of a classic, more classic kind of CA way. And uh, so the, what I've been looking... I started looking at really long mms, you know, ones I... You know, I took an arbitrary cut-off of mms over five, 0.5 of a second... Uh, I've got a collection of I can't remember, but certainly forty, fifty or so, and you know did the you know just did the usual analysis and see what I came up with, and what theme. This is not final now; it may change if anything ever gets published from this. But you know, the long ums were ones which were associated with something which had high emotional content, con, you know, emotional content, high affect, and you know some of the, the you know the things that were. There was, this conversation was a really nice one because these four women over their hour ranged over a whole load of different topics. And one of the topics was about some friends of theirs who are elderly. These four women are all on the older side and who were infirm, in a couple. And uh, that, so there was a lot of sad stuff going on there. And so you get this high affect, long, mm, you know, you get those sorts of things going on. Then I looked at high pitch. And I know that Margaret Selting, for example, has done some work on high pitch and a couple of other people, John Local, I think. And, you know, what, what, what it was I finding with high pitch here? Well, in the example so far, they don't seem to be so much associated with high affect as with responding to some remarkable, surprising, unusual uh, piece of new piece of information or something like that, you know, an, an unusual event in the story. They go, hmm... I don't know, that's not very good, actually, but they do, they do a high-pitch onset, something, something remarkable. And then the low-pitch ones, they are to do with something negative in some sense, like disgusting, sad, or, you know, or, you know they go, hmm. Um, again, I, I, should, I should be playing you the data, I know. But, uh, that's OK. I can actually, I can hear them all in my mind, yeah. really. It's... And so, you know, there's still a few kind of outliers and so on, so it's not really falling completely into place, but there's definitely a tendency here for these things. And right, most recently I've been looking at mid-pitch, so I left them to last for obvious reasons because you sort of think that they were the more neutral ones, and it does seem to be turning out that that's what they're doing. So, you know, someone's telling a story, and the story might actually be a sad story, but what the mm is responding to is some sort of backgrounding to the story, so you get the mid-pitch mm. That's one thing. So these, these are, these, this is what I'm still grappling with, but it's actually kind of... I never thought I'd go back to them, but it's actually quite, 
quite fascinating to do so and find these other things. The other thing is that, you know, I found, I've been finding that I've probably got some fairly serious errors in my PhD and then the, when listeners talk. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I say fairly serious. I don't think the kind of core findings are wrong, but, you know, like... I, I had all these rise falls. What I'm finding is very few rise falls. It's a different conversation, so I probably should go back to the PhD data and see. But the, you know, these are level falls, not rise falls. I'm, I was hearing them as rise falls. Yeah. I mean, I use Pratt, so you get this kind of object. I know again, not you know, like some CA people might object to doing that sort of thing, but I'm not using Pratt for my analysis. I'm using Pratt as a check yeah. to what I'm hearing. Get the acoustic versus the auditory comparison and uh you know i've got just a handful of, out of those 180 or whatever it is i've got just a handful of rise falls but i've got a whole bunch of level falls they go mm, right mm, for example so i th I'm, think i was hearing that that wrong uh anyway so that's that's where it is at the moment um we'll see where it goes so do you uh, think you would be able to find a distinction between the level falls and, like, I guess, a true rise fall? Maybe. There's it all to be done. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, oh, the other thing is, you know, like, it's also not just simply about it being a fall because some things fall pretty shallow, like 20, 30 hertz, you know, from mid, and they almost sound like levels. And others do a really big fall. Some of those high falls go over way over 100 hertz they fall, you know, so there's, there's um, a lot of big differences. Uh, that a lot of kind of fine, a lot of detail that they just didn't deal with in that original work, you know, but um, we'll I mean, there's, there's actually way too much. I mean, it, it is really a PhD. It's probably too much for what, even for a PhD. So I'll have to be selective about what I do, maybe just look at the pitch from one paper or something. But anyway, we've got uh, a target to have this work published by 2022. Okay. Yes. Well, it's been recorded now. Yes. <laughs> You're tied to I've, the mask. I've, I've tied to it now, yes. Because there's this new journal, and this sounds a bit like nepotism, which uh, Simona Pekarak-Dula and Ilana, who's my wife, are <laughs> editing, called International Linguistics, and she said, ha, ah, you put that in this journal. Thing is, the first year is already, you know, that they've got they've got the, they've got the issues full. Yeah, right. So it okay. wouldn't be before twenty twenty two if I go there. Well, we'll look forward to reading it. Oh, well, I think uh, I've got to first first firm up the findings. And all right. Well, that's okay. It's it's wet our palate for what's to come. Mm -hmm. um, and is there anything else that you would like to chat about? No, I think that's probably enough of. Uh, me going on about my own research for the moment. Right? Okay. Well, Rod, thank you so much for making the time to come and chat today. It's been a pleasure. It's, uh, yeah, we look forward to um, getting this out. And um, you had mentioned before you were teaching a couple classes. Just to give a quick plug to the wiki page, I think we're trying to get a um, part of the wiki having some class syllabi and course materials together. So anyone who might be listening, if you had something to contribute, um, please email uh, the pub email and uh, Rod if you would like to contribute we'll certainly make that uh, or facilitate that for you.
Um, okay. Were at least to be considered. I'd just drop that on you now. But um, <laughs> anyway, no, no, yeah, okay. thank you one more time. And uh, Very welcome. All yeah. right. We'll right. see you at the thank next you, Transcript Analysis Group meeting. Oh, yes. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.